focus is on verses 6 and 7. For the righteous will never be moved. He will not, or he will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news, and his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Now, there is no author that is ascribed to this particular psalm. Uh, we, it, it, we, we don't know who it is, uh, but it's clear that the theme of this particular psalm is the righteous man or the righteous person. Uh, the righteous person as described in verse 6, and then also in verse 1, it's described, uh, the, the believer is described as the blessed person. But in either case, what I want to do is look at three particular things from our, our verses 6 and 7 that sort of gives the, the sense of the entire psalm. And in essence, what we see is uh, three things that are set forth about the gospel and those whose trust or whose faith is in the gospel, as uh, as these as this with uh, connected with this threefold description of the blessed or the righteous person. So the first thing, the first thing we want to note here is that the blessed person or the righteous person is described in verse seven as one who trusts in the Lord. That's what the blessed person is. Or verse six, it says, uh, his heart is firm. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So the, the blessed person, whoever they are, we, because it does say something about their attributes and so forth, and, and obviously we are not talking about someone, I, I'm sorry, in verse 7, uh, he's not talking about someone who is virtuous in and of themselves. But they are described, again, as, as trusting in the Lord. Now when... The Bible speaks of trusting. I'm, I'm going to look at trust not in its generic sense, but I want to look at trust in, 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 a, in a very specific sense, what it means to trust in the gospel. And as such, there are three, pre, uh, three things that are presupposed. Anytime we talk about uh, trusting in God or trusting in the gospel of God, it presupposes three things on behalf, on the, on the part of the one who is trusting. In the first place, it presupposes a self-acknowledged deficiency. There is no trusting in God until one recognizes deficiencies in themselves. Uh, we see this throughout the Psalms. We see it in other portions of Scripture. In fact, David says, Lord, if you were to, to judge us according to our deeds, who would be able to stand? Uh, even when we looked at Psalms 19 where he says, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Well, that, 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 there is an acknowledgement there. What he's acknowledging, or some would call it a confession. And confession, confession is necessary for us to embrace Christ. And it is to recognize, uh, the deficiency is to recognize our failure and our inability to be what God has called us to be. So the trusting person is a person who has recognized their inabilities. I think that's one of the reasons for fallen man. That's why we have such a difficult time with the simplicity of the gospel. We always, we, we have been reared in a cultural environment where we are told we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 19th and early 20th century humanism told us that all of the, the problems of man can be solved by man. But the one who trusts is the one who recognizes how false that thinking is. And so therefore, the trusting person is the person it presupposes when we say a person trusts in God, 
it presupposes an acknowledgement of self-deficiency. And don't we do that, or we should do it, often and regular, that we are to recognize, Lord, I haven't and I can't. And so it presupposes, when you say a person trusts in the Lord, it presupposes their acknowledgement of their own inability. Uh, Paul, uh, is, his, his testimony of his salvation is, is, is clear on that regard. In, in Philippians, he talks about how he saw himself. And so he says, according to the law, he says, I was a, Fa- a Jew among Jews, Pharisee among Pharisees, and according to the law, I was perfect. And then he met Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he recognizes, no, I'm not perfect, he saw that there was covetousness in his heart. And so it's, it is the, the, the pre-converted Paul who said he was perfect according to the law. But it's the converted Paul that says, I'm the chief of sinners. So the trusting person is a person who acknowledges their own deficiencies. No matter how good they may be compared to others, they see themselves as an, with an audience of one, and that is the pure God and the pure judge And in that standard, they recognize they are not what they are supposed to be and they are not able to do what God has required. Here's the second thing that trusting in the Lord presupposes. It presupposes a divine disclosure. It presupposes a divine disclosure. It it presupposes an acknowledged self-deficiency but it also presupposes a divine disclosure. And it, it discloses, this divine disclosure is twofold. In fact, we preached a few weeks ago a couple of times from Psalms 19. And in Psalms 19, we know that God has disclosed his power in the universe. And so the, the first part of Psalms 19 is, a, is really a tribute to what is called natural revelation. So certainly there is a natural revelation, a natural divine disclosure in nature. God shows us, even in fact some have even argued that God has shown us just by nature a basic sense of right and wrong. Which as I've often said, which is why no matter where you go, whatever part of the world where people might be the most primitive, but yet they have basic rules of behavior. Because it is revealed to them by the creator that there is a basic standard of living among other people. There, is, there are certain things. There are, there, there are uh, definite absolutes, in ter- moral absolutes. There is no place that you can go and live among humans and you would be given a medal of honor for stealing something. Because even if they don't have a Bible, they know that it's not right to take what's not yours. And so there is a divine disclosure and the, this, the first part of the disclosure is in nature. And by nature, it's not just the created order. In fact, I tell young preachers all the time that when we speak of natural revelation, yes, the heavens do declare the glory of God. The firmament does showeth forth, forth his handiwork. But the, 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 the most pivotal part, in fact, the most precious part of God's natural revelation are his image bearers. And so we know that the evidence of God is not only seen in the stars and the moon and the sun, but it's in other human beings. So as Martin Luther once said, that the holiest thing that any of us will see on any given day is our neighbor. Because our neighbor, human beings, are a disclosure, a divine disclosure. David says in the Psalms, Psalms 139, that we are fearfully 
and wonderfully made. And so therefore, even if we didn't have anything but nature, even if we didn't have anything but other human beings, we have a basic sense of right and wrong because of what's revealed by God through nature. But God has disclosed something else. You see, in fact, we could argue that the reason there is a self-acknowledged self-deficiency or an acknowledged self-deficiency is because we see the order of right and wrong and we recognize we're not able to keep it. But the trusting person not only knows there is a law by which we will be judged, but the trusting person also trusts in the divine disclosure of grace. And that's in special revelation. Heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day their their, their message goes forth wherever men are, but only in the Son and only in the revealed word. And Son, S-O-N, and only in the revealed word of God does God disclose the fact that he saves sinners. So therefore, the trusting person acknowledges their own self-deficiency against the backdrop of divine disclosure. They recognize that they are, in, they, they are unable to keep the standard that God has required of them, but they also acknowledge that God and God alone has disclosed a way of salvation. Now, we do see people along the way trying to help God out, as with Sarah, with Hagar. God promised, but I'm, I'm, you know, 90 years old, and so I can't have a baby. Oh, I do have a maid, and a, a maidservant, and, and since she is my property, if she bears a son by my, my, my husband, then that means God has blessed us. So that's, that must be what he means. And God says, no, no, that's not what I meant. And he does allow the child to be born, but he says, no, you, he tells Abraham, it's from your wife. And when Sarah hears that, you know what she does? She doesn't say, praise the Lord. She laughs. And here's what it means to trust God. The one who trusts in the Lord. What seems silly to us naturally, as it seems silly to Sarah, that a 90-year-old woman would bear a child from a 100-year-old man. That's 190 human years. That's what we would call past the childbearing years. But God, and they they didn't make it up. It was God who said that you will bear a child. And so the trusting person has had revealed to them a promise from God. Not only the divine disclosure in terms of law, but a divine disclosure in terms of his grace. Brothers and sisters, there is no way, and and listen, fallen man is bold in a lot of things, but the one thing fallen man is not bold enough to do is to say, Lord, save me by sending your son to obey in my place and die for my sins. We, and that's why Paul says he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above that which we are able to ask or think or even imagine. So the trusting person acknowledges their self-deficiency and the trusting person is also, it, it presupposes that something has been divinely disclosed to them. God's law that they have not kept, and God's promises of grace which he has freely given to us. But the third thing, 
that is presupposed by a trusting person. The trusting person presupposes, uh, what is presupposed is that there is confidence that what has been divinely disclosed is sufficient for what is acknowledged to be deficient. In other words, what, what is presupposed by the trusting person is that they acknowledge they are, they are self-deficient. They acknowledge that God or God has divinely disclosed something. But here's what trusting is. It is trusting, is trusting that what God has dis, di, disclosed is sufficient for our deficiency. What, what, has been dis, what, what is uh, our deficiency is our inability. Our inability to do the will of God, our inability to be pleasing to God, our inability to pay the penalty for our failures. But what is divinely disclosed is that God gives us everything that we recognize we ought to do but cannot. And so therefore, trusting, the trusting person trusts what God has disclosed and they trust the fact that what God has divinely disclosed in the gospel is sufficient for what is deficient in us. That being the case, the blessed or the righteous person is a trusting person. They trust that our failures, as, as great as they may be, are beyond our ability to heal or to get over. But they trust the fact that God speaks and that God has revealed a greater way. And what God has revealed is salvation through another. And so we trust that what God has promised is sufficient for what we are lacking. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which we call the proto-euangelion, which is the pre-gospel, and in that statement, God promises, or he's actually speaking to the serpent, but what he promises his image bearers is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. Now notice, and, and so they understand that there is going to be a ch someone who is born, a male that is born from this woman who will defeat the one who tempted them. And then in chapter 4, notice the way chapter 4 of Genesis opens, that, that Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. And when she saw him, you know what she says? Behold, I have begotten. And in the older translations, it would have or in the original translation. She says, behold, I have begotten the man from the Lord. And what she's thinking is that what she gave birth to is the child that is promised in chapter 3, verse 15. In other words, she knew that there was a promise and she trusted that promise. She was mistaken because her firstborn was actually the first murderer. But she still trusted. And so therefore the trusting person recognizes their own deficiency. It presupposes that God has disclosed something to them. And it presupposes that they have confidence that what God has divinely disclosed is sufficient for what they themselves have acknowledged to be a deficiency. It's sufficient for that. And so that's why we can go boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, we, it's, it's interesting, I was sharing this with a young man last week, all of the places, and if we understand the language and the symbolism of the, of the divisions that we see within the temple, in the temple structure, 
And in the, in the division of the temple, you had the outer courts, and you had, at, at later when the, the actual temple was, was built, there was a certain outer court where Gentiles and Jews could come, and then there was another court where only the Jews could come, and then there was the inner sanctuary where only the priests could come, and then there was a veil that, uh, behind that veil, only the high priest could go. And he could only go once a year. Okay, and you know what had to take place before he could go once a year? He had to go through a bunch of rituals, cleansings, and ceremonies. He had to sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of others. But here's what we have because, of we, because we trust. We are told, in fact, look at how many times in the book of, 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 of Rev, uh, the book of Hebrews where it speaks of us by virtue of our faith going behind the veil. In, in Hebrews 10, we, 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 uh, it, it says that in verse 19 that we can, we can go now behind the veil which is his flesh, speaking of Christ. And it says this, because our, our consciences, our evil consciences have been cleansed and our bodies have been made pure. And then in Hebrews 4, we are told that we can boldly go to the throne of grace. That's behind the veil. In Hebrews 6, it says that our forerunner has entered behind the veil. And so the trusting person looks at themselves as being insufficient, but they're trusting God's promises so that they can now boldly stand in the presence of God as if they had not sinned. Not only does the writer tell us that the righteous or the blessed person is a trusting person. The second thing to note is that the content of the righteous person, of of the content of their trust, has given them a certain privilege. So therefore, in verse 6, we are told that the righteous person shall not be moved. And not only will they not be moved, but we are told that they will be remembered forever. It was interesting reading some of the old writers on that statement, they will be remembered forever. There was one old Puritan who says that their legacy will be great throughout all of the earth. Men will never forget their name. And I like some of the Puritans, but all of them are like us. They have feet of clay and they can be wrong. And that brother was wrong. This doesn't mean when it says that the righteous person will not be, will, will always be remembered. And notice that it plays off of each other. They will never be moved, and, but they will always be remembered. They will be remembered forever. It's not speaking of our legacy among, our lasting legacy among fallen and fallible humans. Rather, I think what this means is they will be remembered by God which by, um, of course, uh, we know that they will be remembered by God, in which case we see that in verse 6, it implies that trusting in the Lord has both temporal and eternal benefits. Trusting in the Lord has both temporal and eternal benefits. Here's the, the temporal benefits. We will not be moved. And we'll see that even further in verse 7. We will not be moved. I remember the song they used to sing when I was growing up in church. And it was a hymn the, old, the whole church was saying, I shall not. I shall not be moved. I'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I shall not be moved. Well, that's not hope. That's not just vain hope. That's not me trusting in myself. 
those who trust in the Lord shall never be moved. And that only applies in time. In other words, it only imply, it, it only has application as long as we are living because it means that we will not be moved from our faith. And the reason I say that's only trapped in time is because when we are in his presence, we won't need to trust. Our faith will give way to sight. In fact, I was just reading earlier today where one writer put it this way. He says, the just live by faith. But those who die in the Lord no longer live by faith. They, they now live by sight. And so, therefore, we, we shall not be removed is a reminder that we will never be moved from what God has called us to in this life. But then he also indicates a, a, an eternal blessing. Not only will we not be moved in this life, because we will not be moved in this life, or you could flip it, the reason we will not be moved in this life from being the children of God is because we'll never be forgotten by God. Isn't that good news? One thing that we do read constantly in the New Testament, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it on a couple of occasions, but he cites the words of Jeremiah that God will forget some things, and which is amazing in itself. We know that's an anthropomorphic statement that God does. He says, but he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I'll forget it. In fact, we, are, we read that our sins are cast into the sea of forgetfulness. God will not remember our sins, but God will remember us. I love that song we used to sing during communion, uh, remember me, remember me, remember me, remember me. And that's, that's what God says. I will, they will be remembered forever. So in time... The righteous or the trusting person will not be removed from their faith. But in eternity, they will be remembered forever by God. There is nothing in time that will move us. And there is nothing in eternity that will cause God to therefore forget us. Let me lay out three things that the righteous will never be moved from in this life. And we need to be mindful of that. The righteous will never be moved from the presence of God. We'll never be removed from the presence of God. In fact, our fallen state alienates us from God. We see that visually and visibly dis displayed for us when Adam is kicked out of the garden. Brothers and sisters, those who come to Christ or come to God by faith in Christ will never be moved from his presence. That's certainly what, what, what Paul is arguing from in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, when he says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? He says, there is none, because it is God who justifies. He says, no one can bring any charge against God's elect. And then he asks this, what can separate us from the love of God? What can, what can separate us from his presence? What can cast us out from his presence? He says, can anything pass, anything out of our past separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? He says, no. Can anything in our future? He says, no. Can anything in the heights? No. Can anything from the depths? No. He just goes on and on and he says, not powers, not principalities. Nothing can separate us, in essence, from the presence of God.
Brothers and sisters, we'll never be moved. We need to know that. We need to know that sometimes in our wilderness journeys, we feel that the Lord is not with us, but his presence is always upon us. We, and that's always a nuanced statement when we talk about the presence or an omnipresent God, because we know that God, there is no place that he is not. But the difference is because he knows he's with the sinner as well, but he's with the sinner in a different way. He's with us with mercy. He's with us with grace. He's with us with love. He's with the sinner as a judge, waiting until his appointed time to make him accountable for all that he has failed to be and to do. Brothers and sisters, as long as we are in this life, we will never be separated from God's presence. But not only will we not be moved from his presence, we will never be moved from his provisions. There is never a spot that we can be in where God doesn't provide for us. He provides open roads. He provides crooked roads. He provides open doors. He closes doors. He supplies all of our needs. Peter says he's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. What is it that we have what is it that we have that he has not given? And what is it that we have needed that he has not supplied? I tell individuals as well as churches whatever you need for now God has supplied it. And to think otherwise is to say that we can reach some point or corner in our Christian experience individually or collectively where God has left us on our own. Brothers and sisters, as long as we are in this earth, I know it's, it, it might seem like it's, it's, it's demeaning, but we are all dependent children. And God is a wise and gracious father. And if, heaven, if earthly fathers know how to take care of their dependent children, then how much more does the heavenly father know how to provide for his dependent children? There is nothing that we need that we have, that we do not have, and God will not withdraw his provisions for his children because we trust him. But thirdly, God will never in this life revoke on his promises. We will never be moved from the promises of God. He has promised us eternal life. He has promised us a presence before him for all eternity And there is nothing that we will encounter or go through in this life that will cause God to remove his promises for us. Now, one of the very important reasons for us to understand this is because when we reach that point where we think we have outsinned his promises, then we will try to manipulate trying to get them back. I was reading a a, a sermon from a brother from Nigeria and he came from an actually an Anglican church, but he made this observation. He was exhorting Christians to be thankful to God. He says, we, are to, we ought to always be abounding in thanksgiving. And I said, that's good. So far, so good. And he says, because when we are thankful, that causes God to bless us more. And I said, you know, no, pump your brakes. We ought to be thankful in all things. But our, thanks, our thanksgiving 
does not trigger anything in God. We ought to be thankful simply because he's a giver and we are receivers. But our, our being thankful doesn't cause him to bless us. You know what causes him to bless us? His promises. We didn't ask God to promise to save us. He took that upon himself. That's why I love when the Lord goes to Moses and he gets ready to send him to the children of Israel. He says, tell them that I have heard their cry and I've remembered my promise to Abraham. I remembered my promise to Isaac and to Jacob. Brothers and sisters, God remembers his promises to us because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus And as long as Jesus is wounded, and as long as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, there is nothing that the Father has promised that he will not deliver. We are told that the righteous man is a trusting, or the righteous person is a trusting person. And the trusting person will not be moved. They will not be moved in time, and they will be remembered by God For all eternity, God knows us, and he knows us intimately, and he knows us individually. And so, therefore, his presence is always with us. His provisions are always available to us, and his promises are always good. Well, that brings us to a third thing that we see in verse 7, another description of the righteous or the just person we are told they will not be afraid of bad news. I thought about that one. In fact, that's what got me to preach this message because we are surrounded by bad news. And so as I was thinking about it, there are, when, we, when we look at this statement, three things that, that we want to look at concerning this statement. N- number one, this statement that the righteous is not afraid of bad news, this statement reflects a realistic grasp of living in a fallen world. In other words, we know that in a fallen world, there is bad news. And it doesn't mean that the righteous won't sometimes be shaken by bad news. Job got bad news after bad news after bad news. So there is bad news, and one of the good things, or to me, one of the realistic things about Christianity is that it doesn't put us in an ivory tower. It doesn't separate us from the the grit and the grime of this world. It It doesn't remove us. It doesn't isolate us from it. God's people are thrown. That's why Paul could say that you have, like like sheep, you have led us into the slaughter. You have led us into this. You have, this is where we are. Even David's great psalm of the the shepherd, of God being our good shepherd, he acknowledges that he leads us sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. And so in this fallen world, this statement acknowledges the realism of living in a world of sin. It's not just the sins of others, is it? It's, isn't it our sin as well? Haven't we contributed? 
I like what Mavis Staples said in um, uh, the song. She says, you know, you talk about um, she says, help respect yourself. She says, you, you talk about air and, and, and air pollution and so forth. She says, well, put your hand over your mouth when you cough. That'll help the solution. <laughs> you know, so we contribute. We can talk about how corrupt this world is. And it is corrupt. And we contribute to it. But here's what we know that even though, because bad news is a reality in a fallen world. And the good news about the gospel is that it doesn't isolate us from the realities of the world in which we live or the worldliness that remains within us. There are all sorts of bad news that we can be exposed to by living in a fallen world and being fallen creatures. But the righteous person, the trusting person, they may be shaken by the bad news, but they are not afraid of the bad news. And sometimes we, less, trust me, there, there's news that we'd rather not get. And sometimes we don't respond the best to the bad news, but it doesn't mean we are afraid. But here's the second thing. Trusting in the Lord connects us to a truth that transcends our grasp or our experience. Trusting in the Lord connects us to a a truth that transcends our grasp or our immediate existential experiences. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I think this is the point that Paul is trying to drive home, and he uses almost poetic language to the point where we almost forget the substance of what he's saying. He says, beginning in verse 16, he says, we, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, bad news, but we as uh, as to, to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Yes, the righteous person, the blessed person, the trusting person, they will not be afraid of bad news even though, one of the things about it, they won't be shocked at bad news. We live in a world full of bad news. We won't be shocked by it. But more importantly, what we trust in transcends the bad news around us. Now, some have called this the pie in the sky part of Christianity, but it's not pie in the sky. It's not pie in the sky. No, we, we understand that there is a greater work that's taking place in our creation. We live in a cursed creation. And as Paul says in Romans, he says that, that the whole earth, the whole universe, the whole creation is groaning like a woman in child labor. Therefore, it is, it is under a divine curse. What God is doing for the righteous, for the blessed, for the trusting person is doing the same thing that he did for Noah when he said, build me an ark. 
And it had never rained before, and it took him over 100 years to build this thing. It took him ages to build it, but just build the ark. Because here's one thing that is certain, the rains are definitely coming. You build the ark, and you get in it. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world full of bad news. And God gives us his promises so that we know what's going on, but we trust that there is a God working behind the scenes. So we're not afraid. But here's the third and final thing as it relates to not being afraid of bad news. The righteous person, therefore, has a continual need for the good news of the gospel. Now, granted, we, we even like John the Baptist, sometimes we will have those momentary laughs. Remember, John the Baptist is the one, behold, the son of uh, the, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world until he was thrown in jail. And then Jesus came preaching and he says, yes, here's what I know from Isaiah, that when the Messiah comes, he will set the captives free. I'm a captive. He's the Messiah. I'm supposed to be free. And Jesus didn't even so much as visit him. And then he got upset. And he sent his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Bad news is when you're thrown in jail and you declare that the Messiah has come and then he doesn't even so much as come visit you, let alone let you out of jail. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by bad news. And so I love the way Jesus responds. First off, he gives kudos to John. He says, of all of the prophets born of a woman, there is none that is greater than John the Baptist. But knowing that John is rooted and trusting in the gospel of God's grace, he just quotes back from Isaiah. He says, so listen, get it, get it clear. That doesn't mean just because John is a little shaken doesn't mean he's any less of a prophet. He says, but now you go tell John. You go tell John that the blind have received their sight. You go tell John that the lame are walking. You go tell John that the, the poor have the gospel preached to him and see what he does with that. Brothers and sisters, we always need the good news. We need the good news because it is not native to us. The good news always comes from outside of us. The good news of God's grace. The promise that we trust in is not in us. What he's given us is the deposit of his Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that we belong to him. But in the interim, there are voices all around and voices that will emanate from within that will give us every reason to no longer serve, no longer trust, no longer believe. I like what he says. The righteous are not afraid of bad news. We don't relish bad news. Bad news, by very definition, is bad news. Bad news doesn't feel good. Bad news has things, has, it's, it reports on things that are going on in the world and things that are sometimes going on from us. See, all bad news doesn't come from the news broadcasts. Bad news comes from family members. It comes from doctors. It comes from people that love us and people that we love. But those who trust in the Lord will not be moved. And therefore, when bad news comes, we have the good news to put it in context. 
It's not good news when you, when you lose loved ones. It's not good news. But when they die in the Lord, the good news is to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. The good news is that God has not forgotten, nor has he forsaken you. Here's a threefold description of the righteous, not by deeds done. They're not defined by deeds done. They're not even defined by everything that they will experience in this life. But here's, here's a threefold description of the righteous, trusting, blessed person. They trust the Lord. They will not be moved. And they're not afraid of the bad news. The reason we need to be washed in the gospel is because of the bad news. But the good news is so much better. Isn't that what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4? He says that's why we don't, we don't look at the things that are. We, we look towards that which is not seen yet. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's, it's just not seen yet. Because we know that God has promised us eternal life. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The, the trusting, the blessed, the righteous person trusts in the Lord and is steadfast and firm in that trust. The, 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 the blessed person, the righteous person will never be moved. And the blessed person is not afraid of what happens in the world. Let's pray. Our God... Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Savior. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that our faith, our confidence, our hope is in what you have promised us in Christ Jesus. We know that we are often shaken, and sometimes we get off track in, in our thinking and in our doing, and we are all like John the Baptist. But, brother, but, Father, you have given us blessed hope and confidence in Jesus. We pray that we know that we will not be moved, and it's not because we won't try to move. But we are held firmly by your grasp, and your grip of grace will not let us go. We know that we are kept by our great shepherd. So we pray that as we navigate in this world, that our hope and our confidence would be made sure and it would be manifest in all of our thinking, all of our speaking, and in all of our doing. Thank you for your grace in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.